Hello and welcome to the October edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this program. I'm John Kay and I'll be finding out how liberal Judaism has decided to revolutionize their Jewish wedding ceremony as we've come to know it. I'm Clive Roslin and I'll be finding out why a North London rabbi is highlighting the importance of the Bracha mutation within our community. I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be finding out about the extraordinary work of Step-by-Step Kids, a charity which provides daily services to parents of disabled children. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be looking into just one of the different ways that our community has marked the High Holy Days as a result of the coronavirus restrictions. And we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London Mazorsi Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories of the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. The US Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died of pancreatic cancer at her Washington, D.C. home. She was 87. Ms. Ginsburg was a prominent feminist and an iconic champion of women's rights. She was only the second ever woman to sit on the Supreme Court, serving 27 years. She struggled against overt sexism throughout her career, leading to her lifelong support for gender equality. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, used his Rosh Hashanah message to stress the importance of being mindful towards others, saying that cases of coronavirus are on the rise primarily because of irresponsible behaviour. He said that despite the increase in the lead-up to the High Holy Days, he would pray for a good, happy, peaceful, fulfilling and, most of all, a healthy new year. Two men have been fined by a court in Carlisle for abusive, threatening comments they made towards a group of Jewish people on a train. Paul Blaylock and Ian Routledge admitted to the charge. The comments were made during a journey between Newcastle and Carlisle earlier this year. The group, who were visibly Jewish because of their head coverings, were told they should go back to where they came from. The men were fined and had to pay costs and a victim surcharge. The high-achieving private Jewish school Emmanuel College has made a plea for financial support, saying it's had a very tough time with COVID. The chairman of the governors, Professor Anthony Warrens, organised a special meeting on Zoom to appeal to parents and supporters for help. Professor Warrens said the virus had affected almost every aspect of school life, that they didn't have much in the way of endowments, and the building needs renovations and upgrading. The disgraced film producer Harvey Weinstein has been stripped of his honorary CBE six months after he was sentenced to 23 years in jail for rape and sexual assault. The Honours Forfeiture Committee suggested to the Queen that his appointment as a commander of the Order of the British Empire should be annulled. And finally, a 20-year-old Jewish student at the University of Manchester decided to spend Yom Kippur with his seven non-Jewish flatmates who all offered to fast with him. Judah Moss, who's studying politics and criminology, decided not to travel home to London to avoid potentially spreading the coronavirus. He said his flatmates knew very little about the Day of Atonement, so they learned about his culture, and all in all, it was a really good bonding moment. Viv, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. For many decades, traditional Jewish wedding ceremonies have been exclusive for Jewish couples. However, at a recent meeting, Liberal Judaism has announced that this is about to change. From this month, mixed couples, where you've got 
one's Jewish and the other not Jewish, will be allowed a rabbinic blessing under the chuppah. Some might call it a bold move. Some might say it's about time. Some might say it's outrageous. Whatever your stance, let's find out more from the chair of the Conference of Liberal Rabbis and Cantors, Rabbi Aaron Goldstein, who joins us now. Rabbi Goldstein, can I ask you, first of all, what do you mean exactly by a rabbinic blessing? So for a good number of years now, we've actually been doing blessings for people in mixed marriages when they get married. We, by English law, are unable to marry them. They have to have a, a registrar do that. But after that fact, then we it's not so much a rabbinic blessing. It's more that we would ask God to bless the couple. We don't think that we as rabbis have any special powers to bless. But we ask God to bless their marriage, hoping that it's going to be a loving one. And we do so very much in the hope that they are going to have a Jewish home. And I think this is the most important aspect of our decisions. The chuppah has always represented for people a symbol of the Jewish home. And what we have found over the years that we have been doing mixed faith wedding blessings is that in many of those homes, they would describe it as a Jewish home, regardless of whether one of the adults within it are actually not Jewish themselves. For those people that think, ah, they're going to be officiating at a wedding where somebody non-Jewish is marrying somebody Jewish, that is not the case. No, we, ca we cannot do that by English law. But what we can do is to ask God to bless that marriage. So for many people, they will have, maybe they'll get, a, uh, it's actually the uh, registry marriage is not the most important thing for them. It's actually the blessing itself and the recognition within Judaism of the validity of this relationship. And so they might in jeans and a t-shirt go down and uh, get married at the registry office. And then afterwards, then the, the actual main do, in a sense, their wedding day, as far as they would see it, is actually the Jewish blessing that we are able to give them. Has there been a lot of pressure from either members of the liberal community or people generally to say, look, you should be doing this? One of the questions that we are asked all the time, pretty much in my experience, certainly, when couples come to me is, can we have a chuppah? And thus far, it's been a no. But the pressure, I guess, has been building, mainly because the question is consistent. It's such an important part of what many Jewish people see as their recognition of having a Jewish home. So I use the example from my family, very much so. My sister-in-law married Matt, whose only religion is Watford Football Club for his sins, and mine now, because I'm now season ticket holder with him. And they have a thoroughly Jewish home. When they got married a number of years ago, I was unable to do the marriage blessing underneath a chuppah, whether I wanted to or not, that wasn't within our rules. But actually, it would have been totally appropriate to do so. If I go over on a Friday night on my way back from synagogue to their home, and Wendy is out for whatever reason, Matt is there saying, do you want to come in? We're just about to light the candles. He is the one who is actually helping and supporting and creating a Jewish home in which, in their case, four children are going to be thoroughly Jewish and, we hope, have Jewish homes in their fashion as well in the future. If a rabbinic blessing is going to be a sort of de facto wedding, which normally, if it was a more conventional Jewish wedding, liberal or otherwise, I don't know, might last about half an hour, something like that, how long would this 
blessing last? There's no difference in terms of length of time. There, prob- there normally are differences in terms of the liturgy that we might use. So working with the couple to work out what exactly is appropriate for them and their circumstances, recognising as well that the non-Jewish partner comes along probably with a family and with other people coming as well. And we want them to feel included within the ceremonies. I'm very happy to have secular readings. In fact, many of our Jewish weddings with two Jews together will want to personalise things with secular readings today as well in our contemporary world. The ceremonies are appropriate for the couple and I think generally are as Jewish as when there are two Jews. What we tend to see as well is when we have somebody who's Jewish and not Jewish, they actually have to think a lot harder about what their ceremony is going to look like, what to include and not to include. And a lot of thought goes into it. So I find that the these ceremonies have great integrity. Is it also, though, a way perhaps of persuading the non-Jewish partner maybe to convert to Judaism, perhaps by stealth? Uh, Oh, uh, look, uh, we'd be delighted if they want to uh, convert at some point in time in the future, then fantastic, and we'd be delighted to do that. It's not not our attempt to to convert them by stealth. We're not proselytising to them at all. Again, just using the example of my brother-in-law, he hasn't got a religious bone in his body. No, we, we offer religious conversions. You know, we don't offer secular conversions within <laughs> Judaism. And so for the vast majority of British people, it's inappropriate. And the last thing we want to do is to force somebody to change their identity, which sounds like a very painful thing, just for the sake of getting married. Okay, I'd much prefer people not to start off their relationships and for us to support them to have a Jewish home with full integrity and honesty about what people are and what they're not. And for us to help and support create that special space for them. How do you think the Orthodox community are going to respond to this? Uh, Well, it depends what you mean about Orthodox. The vast majority of people who go to an Orthodox synagogue on a very regular basis might think this is a shanda. And I very much hope that we will be able to be here and they will have the good common sense to actually refer their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren in time when one of them happens to meet and fall in love with someone who is not Jewish. I'm not saying that what we do is right. I say what we're doing is right for us and for the people who want to be Jewish and express their Judaism through liberal Judaism. I'm not saying what orthodoxy does is wrong. This is just right for us, right for the people who we encounter and want to live Jewish lives in a liberal way. For us at this moment in time, this is the right thing to do. We certainly, since we have made this announcement, have had a good number of phone calls from people from a variety of different backgrounds saying we've seen this and actually we didn't know that you did this at all anyway, regardless of whether it was with a chuppah or not. And my daughter, my son, my granddaughter, you know, is, is with someone who's not Jewish and, you know, we'd like to connect you, we'd like to uh, talk with you. It gives a real possibility for people to acknowledge their love and their marriage within Judaism rather than pushing people away from Judaism. I think that is the significant point for me. I want people, I want to count Jews in, and I want to count them in together with their friends and their partners and whoever wants to be part of the Jewish community and to support us. I think it's a wonderful way for us to bring Judaism to many more people in this country.
Rabbi Aaron Goldstein, Chair of the Conference of Liberal Rabbis and Cantors, and of course, Senior Rabbi at Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Thanks very much indeed for speaking to us on Jewish Views. Pleasure as always. Thank you. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, you may not know that Jewish people are more susceptible to certain types of cancers. This is largely done to the BRCA gene, which is particularly prevalent amongst Ashkenazim. A rabbi from New North London Synagogue has shared this story of loss to raise awareness for this potentially fatal mutation. Oliver Joseph spoke out around the time of Hereditary Cancer Awareness Week, which was last month. I'm delighted to say that Rabbi Joseph bravely joins us now to tell us more. Rabbi Joseph, this is particularly poignant to you. Would you be so kind as to tell us why? I can. Lovely to be uh, with Jewish Views today. My story my cancer story goes back quite a long way, uh, some 20 years or more. I had cancer at the age of 17, Hodgkin's disease. And then from there, unfortunately, had significant experience in my family of cancer that my late mother, Linda, passed away from cancer a couple of years after my own cancer. And then more recently, five years ago, my little sister, Betsy, also passed away from cancer. The focus on hereditary cancer and the, the link that you made to hereditary cancer awareness week, which was just in the beginning of October, is that both my mother's cancer and my sister's cancer both were connected to breast and ovarian cancer, which we now know in, in much greater clarity is caused by a faulty BRCA gene which increases the chances significantly of somebody getting cancer in their lifetime. And that significant increase is particularly marked in for women in relation to breast and ovarian cancer. So, so my, 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 my personal story of cancer as a 17-year-old was not genetically inherited cancer, as far as we know, but both my mother and my little sister passed away from from cancer, which was caused by a BRCA gene that 20 years ago we knew nothing about, at least inside our Jewish community, scientists were just just about had discovered it, but it was uh, not very largely spoken about. And now, 20 years on, we know a lot more about that cancer-causing gene. I think it's immensely brave of you to talk about it now, and I understand it, what a tragic story it is. But for those who might not understand, could I ask you, what is BRCA? So I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rabbi, not a scientist, but we, my understanding is that BRCA is a gene that we all have. And the gene mutation, which has two different forms, BRCA1 and BRCA2, is a fault in the gene, which increases your chance in your lifetime of having cancer. And the, the BRCA gene, which I'm also a carrier of, is particularly increases the chances in women, as I said, of getting ovarian and breast cancer in one's lifetime, particularly in relation to breast cancer, a woman's chance of getting breast cancer goes up, I think, somewhere in the region of 20% to 80% in their lifetime. So that's a significant increase 
in the chance of, in that example, of getting breast cancer in your lifetime. And that's what my sister, where my sister's cancer started by way of a lump in her breast. It's such a sad story. You've just told us about the tragic loss in your family, but but why does the Brecon bit of it mean? What does it mean so much to you? Why? I mean, I'm not I'm not so connected to the, to the tragedy of the story. In fairness, I it was it was very sad and and tough losing a parent at a young age. I was just before my twentieth birthday when my mother passed away. Her mother also passed away from cancer at a relatively young age, and I think even her grandmother, so my great-grandmother, would have passed away from cancer at a young age. So it follows down the line on my mother's side, that genetic cancer, and you know I would not wish upon anybody that they should lose a sister at such a young age. Betsy was before her 30th birthday when she passed away. I... I don't have a particular opinion on whether people should get tested or not tested, but I'm not sure if people do have, at least in our Jewish community, the research suggests that there is a vast void in the place where there should be knowledge about genetically caused cancer, given that Jewish community is 40 times more likely to carry a form of this gene mutation in the Ashkenazi Jewish community and an increased risk also in the Sephardi Jewish community we face up, upwards of the, some of the statistics say 90% of people don't know about the BRCA gene. And that's a significant lack of knowledge in our community, which we have, which as rabbis and as community leaders, we really need to begin to address in an urgent and significant way. And people then need to go on and make their own choices about testing and elective options in relation to preventing and curtailing the possibility of getting cancer. But the starting place has to be knowledge of this propensity towards this uh, genetic mutation. And some of, some of that knowledge will then be translated into saving lives, that people can be more vigilant about copping a feel, as they say, in the, in the breast cancer community of, of women checking their breasts, but also just being more away and aware and awake to the need to both check yourself and know what your options are in terms of cancer-preventing measures. So that, of course, is the reason why this all means so much to you. Are you in any particular risk yourself? And have you been going for many checkups? Um, so I am 20 years in remission from my own cancer, so I haven't had a checkup in relation to my own cancer for, for 10 years at least. And in terms of my being a BRCA carrier, me and my twin sister and my little sister who passed away are all BRCA carriers. The known statistic, statistic at this moment is that 50% of children will carry BRCA from one generation to the next. In our family, three out of three of my mother's biological children are BRCA carriers. So we have a 100% track record on that. My chance of developing prostate cancer in my lifetime is slightly raised, but it's not significantly raised beyond the likelihood that, that I would develop prostate cancer in my lifetime as a member of the general population. But I am able to pass on the BRCA gene to any children that I have, any biological children I have. So one of our decisions 
as a relatively newly married couple, me and my wife decided to go down an IVF route, which is the way that you can then also add on to the IVF another procedure, which is called PGD, which is pre-diagnostic implantation, genetic, genetic implantation or genetic testing, which enables you to exclude BRCA-positive embryos from the implantation process. So we have a, a young daughter who's nine months old, who we are t assured 99.99% it will be BRCA-free because she was born by way of this IVF PGD process. I think your, your story is immensely sad, but also very uplifting. And clearly your message has become quite clear to me as to why you're doing what you're doing. I, I, I really wish you all the very best and thank you very much indeed. And thank you for speaking for us on the Jewish views, not only for that, but also for raising awareness about such an important subject. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you taking time for the interview. If I would just add one more word, it would just be that there are multiple resources available and material on BRCA and the organisation I've partnered with in the last uh, month has been Ovarian Cancer Action and people can find more information on the BRCA gene on ovarian.org.uk forward slash BRCA, which is BRCA. And uh, thank you guys for your time. Rabbi Oliver Joseph, thank you very much indeed. I wish you good health. No, honoured. I hope your daughter has a wonderful life. Amen. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. It's around this time of year when we're reminded of what we really should be thankful for. And this year, in particular, health is probably very high up that list. Imagine being the parent of a child with a disability. Perhaps you already know what that is like. Did you know that the community has its very own organisation that looks to help families in that very position? It's called Step by Step Kids. And their director, Esther Hoffman, joins me now. Thank you for coming on the programme, Esther. For those who don't know, tell us a bit about Step by Step Kids. Step by Step Kids was established over 20 years ago by a mother of two disabled boys who was desperate for some programmes for them. And she started with a small swimming class, taking her children every once a week in the morning, on a Sunday, at 7 o'clock in the morning with, in a taxi with some volunteers to give her two autistic boys a chance to enjoy themselves and have a bit of free time in the water. And then the organisation just grew and grew. Today we serve over 150 children with disabilities, ranging from autism to global developmental delay, Down syndrome, hearing loss and many others, with a wide range of activities. We run Sunday clubs, holiday provisions, holiday play schemes, sports programs, and every day we have an amazing after-school stay and play session from 3.30 to 6.30 where we serve a hot meal. And that's besides for the services over the Chagim and every day that school is closed, bank holidays, etc., we are open. So we're giving the families tremendous respite. Can you talk me through a typical day at Step by Step Kids? I mean, let's start off during non-COVID times and then we can look at how you've managed to adapt the charity during this 2020 session. A Sunday session, 
stuck in hand with a van leaving at 9.20 in the morning to fetch children from their home. We have two of our very own disabled vans and they go around to collect children because this, otherwise it would be impossible for them to come to us. And the children arrive at our setting at around 10 o'clock where we have a one-to-one ratio of staffing or two-to-one ratio at three different locations. We have three different Sandy clubs running. One is for younger children, one is for big boys, and one is for big girls, teen girls and teen boys. And they all take place at different settings. And then the children come on, come on site, they have free play, and then they do a whole sensory program. They, do, they have lunch, they do activities, we bring in entertainers, they play in our soft play, they spend time in our sensory room, and they just come home relaxed and happy after having a fulfilling day with dedicated carers looking after them, very skilled team leaders in a beautiful setting, and they're just happy and relaxed, and the families have a chance to breathe. That would be a Sunday and any other day that we're running services. Whereabouts are you based? We're based in London and 15 in Harringay. It's just at the edge of Stamford Hill. And we serve children from across London. We go everywhere. How has COVID-19 changed the way your organisation works? It literally put a severe sudden stop at all our programs, which were all group-based, and we just had to close that down once the lockdown came into effect. And for us, it was devastating, thinking of the children that we feed every day. How are they going, where are they going to get supper from? Who's going to be giving them hot meals? So we actually reinvented our services, and rather than doing activities on our site, we sent activities home. Rather than serving food on site, we sent food home. So we've been sending out hundreds and hundreds of meals. We've been sending out activity packs and programs and sport packages and all, all kinds of entertaining toys and sensory equipment for children at home so that they can be entertained. We've had the most wonderful letters coming back from families and from children to tell us how much they've enjoyed that. Now that things have eased up, we have had smaller sessions for shorter periods of time. We've rented a lot more premises so we could spread children out and accommodate more children. And we've just been there to save the families. Even when school was closed, they still have some sort of respite available to them. One question comes to mind. The children had to stay at home. How did that affect the parents who obviously use your service to give them a little bit of respite? The parents were devastated. They were tearing their hair out. They, they absolutely lost it. I mean, they, they were calling us up, howling, can we do something? Can I take my child? Just, I, I can't breathe, I can't live. One mother told me, my two teenage daughters have locked themselves in their room and said, I don't know and we don't care. We cannot handle our brother being home right now. They've got a 13-year-old brother who is very, he's all over the place, his hands are everywhere, he's destructive, he's difficult, he's big and large and difficult to look after. It was a nightmare for these families. They were li- they were watching children that had built up four, five years worth of skills painstakingly with therapies week after week, all coming, losing it all in a three-month period of uncertainty. The child felt the environment, felt the change, felt trapped and lost all those skills in three short months. And they were absolutely devastated. They were hit really hard. I believe that the parents and the families of disabled children were hit the hardest with the virus in terms of how the lockdown and the, all the new regulations have affected them. And is it going to take you a lot longer to get these families back together, almost like going back to the beginning when they first came to you? 
it's it's really going to be a huge challenge. We are very concerned about the the, the well being of family, the you know the safety of the children, the ability of families to cope with them. Two or three of the families have wanted to give their children up now for foster care and give them put them up in a home. They just can't anymore. They feel like they're at the end of it, and that's after. It's really, really sad to see that happening. But we will be there for them, and we have set up this new program into place to work more closely with families with like a caseworker basis to help them fight the council for more hours, care hours, and more support so that they can continue keeping their children. We have put into place this new program, which will be launched shortly, to actually give families a more holistic support system, and um, rather than just having the child out, which we can see is not always going to be able to have be, you know, happen. There may be restrictions on that. At least we can be there for the families and give them all the support they need mentally and emotionally so that they can cope with their tremendous challenge. How do you integrate the special care required for the children with their religious needs? And are there different degrees of religiosity with the children that come to you? There are absolutely huge variations in their religiosity of the children that attend our services. And... We just make sure we always have kosher food, so that works for everyone. And we otherwise, it's pretty neutral service. And we we, we have the little cultural activities and programs that we do that just add a nice touch. And some children will be more familiar, and some children will be less familiar. But it's there for them. And we can also sometimes have care of speaking different languages, so that children, you know, like Hebrew or Yiddish, and then children are supported in a, a way that suits them and a way that they feel comfortable with. How did you personally get involved with Step-by-Step Kids? Uh, two and a half years ago, I was recruited for the post. Um, the previous director wanted to give up. She had really uh, she wanted to move on. She had other things on. And the trustees recruited me as the new director. And I have a lot of background in finance and in fundraising, actually, and no background in special needs. And when I was interviewed for the job, I, th- I said to them, look, you know, I have what to offer you, but I, I actually have absolutely no experience or, or, or close family, thank God, that have disabled children. And I don't know much about that, but, you know, I've come in and I've learned a tremendous lot. And it's been a very humbling experience to meet families that are looking after their children and thinking about the challenges they have and how wonderfully they cope with it. And it's just been an amazing experience. Do you rely solely on donations? We are 30% funded by parent fees. We are funded by grant makers and personal donations from donors. So it's a bit of a combination. Very, very little comes directly from the council. People think that disabled children, oh, they, the council pays for that. But in reality, the council pays families a certain amount of care hours, and that never is enough. And they never have enough to cover their needs. So they sometimes are able to use some of those hours at step by step, but many of them, the vast majority, just do not have enough care hours and they will attend services at a very, very subsidised rate. And a lot of the parents, of course, don't have uh, the funds to fund it themselves either, I guess. Absolutely not. I mean, everyone, it's well known out there and the research shows that families with a disabled child have way higher expenses, that parents can't work in the same way, that other people can work. They are committed to their children and they suffer financially. They are really, it's really, really tough for them majority of our families in a very tough financial position. And if people want more information on step-by-step kids, where do they go to? We have a lovely website, 
which is actually under construction. <laughs> it's called Step by Step Kids We're on Facebook and Twitter with on Facebook and Twitter run. And anyone who would like to make a donation, we would very gladly appreciate that. Well, let's hope you go forward and do what you can do and keep doing what you are doing for all these families and the children themselves. Thank you very, very much for joining us on the programme today and good luck with going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, the high holy days may have gone, but they were anything other than normal. Communities here and abroad really have had to make some dramatic adjustments to mark the Hagim. Some have been connecting using technology, others prayed alone. But how exactly were us Jews expected to cope without a rabbi or any sort of lay leader to guide us through? Well, helping no less than 35,000 households was Aish. They've distributed their Rosh Hashanah boxes to help those who would be celebrating without any communal leadership. And I'm delighted to say that we can now speak to the Director of Fundraising for Aish, Roy Gutkin, who's joined me now. What does, just for those who don't know, what does Aish do, before we get to actually what you were doing, what, what does Aish do on a day-to-day basis? So Aish UK is all about helping and guiding young Jewish people on their journey of their own Judaism. So whether it's connecting with Judaism in a religious way, in a practical way, in an academic way, in an, in an experiential way, whatever they want to do to sort of engage further with their Judaism, that's what we're there to help and provide that pathway. So normally they would people would come in and they would meet and, and interact. What would you normally have been doing on Rosh Hashanah and what did you do this year? So our office is based in Hendon, but we do have branches uh, around London and uh, on campuses across the UK. Just to give you an idea of the scope, we deal with programs in high schools, on campus and for young professionals. So the way we put it is uh, sort of from when you leave your parents' home until you make your own home. That's the target market, if you will, of the age participants. We would in a normal year have done a range of events leading up to the High Holy Days, services on the Holy Days themselves, discussion groups, opportunities to socialise, to engage, to discuss, to explore different levels and different aspects of it. So really, this time of year, as as students come back to campus, is is a real opportunity for us to go out and meet new people who want to engage with Asia and our programmes, and also provide programming and events for those who have been engaging with Asia over the last few months and years. So that was the challenge that we had to overcome this year with all of the varying changing day-to-day restrictions and different rules. And that's why we sat down and we thought, what can we do to really have an impact? Because on the one side, we want to make sure that whatever we're currently doing is available in some way, online or otherwise. But also the situation provided HUK with an opportunity to say, what could we do that we could never have done in a regular year and really put our efforts into doing something special? So we sat down and we discussed it for a while and we came up with this idea of, in addition to digital resources, which are fantastic and very useful, we wanted to have something physical that uh, people can really hold in their hands and use over the high holidays, you know, because from an Orthodox perspective, using digital and online resources is, is a problem on the festival days itself. So we wanted to really provide them with a guide to festivals, but also something that they could enjoy with a festival theme for different people in the family, whether they are teenagers, young kids, or, or, or older parents. Okay, 
So what was actually in, I understand that they were boxes that were sent out. They were they were bright red. I think they looked fabulous. They were they were beautifully packaged, big bright red boxes. What was in them? Right, so uh, thanks very much. The idea was to have something that could fit through the letterbox. So it had to be sort of almost flat pack. Inside each box was a combination and people could pick and choose. There was an explanatory prayer book for Rosh Hashanah. There was an explanatory prayer book for Yom Kippur, both of which allow the users to sort of guide through our highlights of the service with some really in-depth explanations and discussion points printed in there. So as a resource, it was really fantastic. We also had um, a third book, which was the High Holidays Children's DIY programs. So anyone with young kids or sort of a guide and a help to sort of put on different types of programming, either in your own house for your own kids or for smaller groups that were allowed. There was also a um, book on Simanim, which are the different specific elements, fruits and blessings that we do for this festival. And that was sort of a laminated, table-ready, spill-proof guide as well, which was quite popular. And in addition to those core items, we had some kids' games like a Where's Wally-style poster called Where's Shmuley, where the kids could look for different kids and adults, because me and my wife quite enjoyed it at home. But, you know, look for different type of signs there, keeping them busy and engaged. We had a card game called Junomia, which was like a twist on a popular card game, which had some really fun aspects. And we also had, just for sort of the seasonal feeling and the fun, we had a little sachet of honey with a apple cereal bar and an apple flavored tea so so that sort of covered the different areas you know the taste the education the fun and i'm really proud of our perspectives magazine which we put together for this uh, festival specifically featuring interviews with the former chief rabbi lord Sachs. so really hopefully for the different ages and the different types of experiences that people wanted to had the idea was that if you are going to a service you can take some of this stuff with you but if you're holed up at home and not able to leave it should have everything you need in a box to have an experience over so, I mean, given that people are, as you say, they're, they're all been sort of distancing and on their own, how did you actually physically put these together? Because you've got thousands of these boxes and you've got thousands of bits that go in the boxes and presumably you want to keep distancing as well. How did you actually manage to sort of run around one another doing it? And who so, actually did it? I must give full credit here to someone called Lee Jacobs. He's the executive assistant to our uh, Chief Executive Rabbi Rowe, and he's also the project manager when we have these types of big projects from time to time. And he set up a really fantastic COVID-proof production line system. We had the use of the Jewish Futures Hall. Asia's part of the Jewish Futures family of charities. So we uh, were able to have quite a lot of space, that area, a hall that can normally sit 40 or 50 people for a sit-down dinner. So we had the space there. We had three days to do it before another organization needed to use the space. And we had at one point up to about 12 or 13 people packing at once, but it was all very spaced out. There was masks, there was gloves, there was hand sanitizers every so often to come in there. So we made sure that everyone who came into that environment was really making sure that they were COVID secure, which made it a bit more challenging, I'm not going to lie. And we had some fantastic volunteers who came in, you know, after school for a few hours, you know, to pack different parts of the boxes we all joked at the beginning that we loved the idea, but we didn't want to end up having to pack five 5,000 boxes ourselves. As it turned out, we packed almost 10,000 boxes ourselves as an organization, which uh, took, took some time and took some painful sacrifices in terms of uh, making sure we had enough people in there packing, but not too many at any given time to Just, maintain. How were they funded and what reactions have you had from the community? So we've had 
two major funders who really loved the concept and came forward to sort of undertake the whole project, which made sure that we weren't losing money on it. One was the the Wigada Family Foundation, who are big friends of Aish and uh, are wonderful supporters of our past projects. We had another family foundation who came on anonymously as well, who also put forward the other half of the costs. And part of the model we put together was that we were charging for the boxes at cost price with this support from these foundations. So we were able to offer what should have been a 15 or 20 pound box in terms of what it cost to put it together. We were able to offer that for much less, for five pounds, seven pounds or 9.99, depending on what level of it, yeah. uh, we had. So that's, that's a little bit about how it came together. We were delighted with the response, the deluge of emails and messages before and after the holidays, not to mention the personal comments when to either our staff reported was really quite humbling and we felt really lucky that we were able to be in a position to help support so many people you know by the end of it we got to uh, nine and a half thousand households in the UK had one of these boxes in their house which was great you know we were so chuffed and the synagogues that worked with us to distribute to their members you know we had a few synagogues who sort of bought en masse 1,000 or 1,500 boxes for that sort of their whole membership and then they added some of their features in for their own synagogue as well so we, we had the ability to be quite flexible Um, And to provide the synagogues and individuals with one more weapon, one more tool on their belt to deal with an unprecedented and challenging festival period. Absolutely fascinating. I only wish you'd sent out umbrellas for Sukkot, maybe maybe next time. Thank you very much for speaking to us on the Jewish views. And also thank you for helping so many people navigate their way through some challenging high holy days in 5781. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. This is the month in which we re-begin the reading of the Torah from Breshit in the beginning. I've always found that first chapter absolutely beautiful. The invocation of the first light, the dividing of the waters, the creation of the trees and the plants, the birds and the fishes, and on one and the same day, the mammals and then the human being. I've seen this as a wonderful poem, a song to the presence of God in all creation. But something I'd paid little attention to until recently when the importance of our planet and the environment is at the foremost in all our months, and when in fact Britain would have been hosting the important conference on the environment, which is now delayed for a year, is how this chapter presents us as the part of an organic whole. We belong with the light and the land and the earth and its plants and its fruits and all creatures together. All of them are God's creation and they are all celebrated on the Shabbat, that first day of rest in which we're invited to see not just that God, but that God's creation is full of wonder and holy. We belong together. We are not separate. We don't dominate from outside. We are part, perhaps with a trusteeship role, but also required to be humble before the presence of God in all things. For too long have we seen ourselves as above creation and we need to rediscover the voice within it which tells us that we are a part, that we belong and must care for all life. Einstein wrote that a human being is part of the whole, 
called by us the universe, but we experience ourselves as separate. He calls this a delusion, a kind of prison, he says. Our task, he writes, must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. It is that beauty that the opening chapters of our Torah conveys. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein, Esther Hoffman, Rabbi Oliver Joseph, Roy Gutkin, and of course we must say thank you to our producer Sue Greenberg and you at home for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcast application. That way you'll be able to hear any previous episode of The Jewish Views or indeed listen to any future ones as and when they become available. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. But from me, Phil Dave, from Clive Roslin, Tony Honickberg, Kate Fulton and John Kay, we hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.